But I'm starting off with the maps. There we are. Right. Uh, the, the sort of sketch I did last time to orient oneself by, remember it is only just uh, a, a kind of map. Uh, um, I started with the one, and then self-awareness in the one, and then the fourfold world of space-time. And last time I was talking mostly about the, uh, the one here, starting with the highest, in some ways the most abstract and most difficult, in some ways the simplest. It is difficult precisely because it's simple, there's no other reason for it. Our minds are used to complexity and complication, and it's very difficult for the mind to be at rest in simplicity. It's always hankering after movement and active understanding. But... Um, I'm moving this time off, 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 away from anyway, the one as one into the area of uh, what McKenna called the intellectual principle, I'll just abbreviate the design theme, but the, the uh, area of the self-awareness in the one. And I thought I would start with one of the descriptions of that which occurs in Plotinus, where a number of descriptions occur. The intellectual principle, beautiful, the most beautiful of all, lying lapped in pure light and in clear radiance, circumscribing the nature of the authentic existence, the original of which this beautiful world is a shadow and an image, tranquil in the fullness of glory, since in it there is nothing devoid of intellect, nothing dark or out of rule, a living thing in a life of blessedness. This too must overwhelm with awe any that has seen it and penetrated it to become a unit of its being. That's the McKenna translation of the passage. There are certain bits and pieces that I want to pick out of that and build on. The first is the business of the light, which I mentioned last time. And that light is the intelligible light of the Platonists. And as I said last, last time, a fortnight ago, it is a reality, it is a tangible reality, it is much more real than the light of day, and the first thing that uh, occurs to one when one comes back to the light of day from it is that one is now moving into an area of imitation. It is so obviously more real. Um, the second is that this intellectual principle includes what has been translated as here, circumscribing the nature of the authentic existence. Uh, that is, in Armstrong's translation, it includes the nature of real beings. In other words, the, um, the really existing intelligences, um, the reality of the world of being, the world of man, remember Plotinus is using being to refer to the relative, that is to say the areas where there is subject and object relationship, uh, that is found there at its realist. And then the third thing is this passage, which again McKenna has translated, to become a unit of its being. 
the uh, translation by Armstrong is to become one with it. Now, this is important because this leads on to the differences of knowing. I can see why McKenna translated it as a unit of its being. It, this is a misleading translation, but it's there, I think, for a purpose. So, having grappled with translations a great deal in my time, I think I can see what he was probably up to. The thing is that on this, this level here, knowing is different on this level here and from this level here. I can come back to this. This is something which has a bearing on the whole question of um, the, the nature of knowledge or epistemology, which I want to come back to in the last lecture. And it is in this area, it seems to me, that one is in a position to launch quite a telling critique of some of the limitations of most modern forms of knowledge, virtually all of them, I think. And it's a critique which is long overdue and should have been made longer. And I think it's a critique that uh, people from the terminal sort of area ought to be making. But I'll come back to that in due course. But the important thing at this point is to note that these two here are different. And it was said last time that one knows the one by becoming it, by, in that sense, uniting with it. It's beyond unity in the sense that you can only have a unity if you get two things together or more things together and bring them together. If there are no two things, there is nothing to unite. On this level, there is no two-ness. Therefore, in that sense, there is no unity. And that is why, um, uh, as you said, it should be zero. Of course, it should be zero. And uh, that is why also um, Grotinus pointed out that at that level, he said, there is no two. That's in, in Ennead 6.9. There's just no two-ness. So it cannot be known uh, simply as an object. That won't work. This level is different. There is a subject-object relationship there, but it is a different kind of subject-object relationship from the subject-object relationship which works in our world out here in the space-time continuum in which we op operate. And uh, it, it was, I think, to distinguish these two uh, that McKenna translated this passage a unit of its being, um, but the only unfortunate thing about it is that if you say a unit of its being, it suggests that you are kind of incorporated as a detail into a whole which consists of a lot of different things brought together. Uh, and it's not that, because this is aspatial and atemporal. Space and time are there potentially, but they only become, uh, as it were, activated on our level. Uh, so the, the, the mode of knowing here is different. And, of course... The mode of knowing is different because the mode of consciousness on that level is different. You cannot attain to this level while remaining in your ordinary everyday state of consciousness. Or at least you can only do it if you have a double level working at the same time, which is possible. But um, uh, uh, I'll come back to that. I hope that gets clearer. You're looking a bit sort of stunned, but... Uh, I'm trying to be as clear as I can, but I hope it makes sense. If it doesn't, I'll, I'll have another go at explaining it later. Uh, and I um, will come back to this question of the modes of knowing in, in a, a minute or two. But the, the, the last point that I wanted to get out of this passage here was that this world is the shadow of the, if you like, archetypal world. I don't like the word archetypal, it's so misleading. 
Um, but it, it's, it, it is an imitation or copy of this world here. Of course, he uses shadow because that comes out of the Platonic myth of the cave, where you remember all the human beings are chained so that they can only see shadows and they cannot turn uh, inwards. They can only, the mind will only look outwards and engage with shadow objects. And um, that is the external world of our ordinary experience. Um, the next thing I want to move on to, I'll come back to this business of knowing in a moment, is the question of the distinction, which I hope I can clarify a little more, between the one and the intellectual principle. Having carefully distinguished between the two, one is then forced to wipe the distinction out. But still, nevertheless, as Protinus said, we divide the better to understand. Um, in virtue of the same passage that I was quoting last time, which is at the end of Aeneid 3.8, the, um, the, the text goes on as follows. The source of all this, that is to say of the intellectual principle, the source of this intellectual principle, uh, cannot be an intellect, nor can it be an abundant power. It must have been before intellect and abundance were. These are later and things of lack. Abundance had to be made abundant and intellection needed to know. The good has no... The good, that is the, what I've been calling the one, the good has no need of the intellectual principle which, on the contrary, needs it. And attaining it is shaped into goodness and becomes perfect by it. The form this received, sprung from the good, brings it to likeness with the good. Um, now, the one and the intellectual principle are distinct. This, although the most perfect of relative things, is nonetheless relative. And you notice that um, he's, he's speaking in the, of the need to know and he speaks elsewhere of a movement towards the object of knowledge which is in fact from the Platinian point of view the beginning of what we know as motion in this world which only exists in a space-time world of subject and objects without that there is no motion as we understand it there is something else on the intellectual level which comes out as motion on our level and uh, uh, this, this distinction therefore leads to the different kinds of no knowing that I have mentioned earlier and there is one other factor in this uh, that is that the relationship of the need of the intellectual principle for the one uh, leads it to, brings it into likeness with the good which is a very strange phrase, into likeness with the good. What does that mean? When I mean, you can get two objects and you can say, right, this object is like that object. If I get hold of a football and turn it into a cube by knocking it about, I can say the football is now like a cube. You're comparing two objects. If you have something which is infinitude, no space, no time, no subjectivity and objectivity, 
beyond perception, then what do you mean by saying that you are going to get something that, however august, is relative, and it is growing into a likeness with that? Yeah? I can't remember the passage, but it could be, yes. Three, two different ways of, of being. Yeah. There is yeah. something in itself, or there's some, there is something like a man is large or something like that, so he's talking about a relative. Yes. It's linked up with that. I don't, I don't know how far he's taken it in that part of the argument, but it could be. Because the point about the, uh, the real beings I return to that on this level is that they are self-existent. They exist from within themselves. Their authenticity is their own nature. You, know, you think of this in terms of identity. You can, let's bring this down to earth. Um, you know nowadays how much stress is laid by uh, various kinds of psychotherapy on role playing, role models and so on, and are on producing a sense of identity based upon role, and you're familiar with that. Uh, the way in which you are encouraged to assume an externally based role as a, a foundation for your identity. Now this is doubtless extremely useful in many circumstances, but ultimately it's futile. Uh, because uh, if you are going to... I mean, I always think of it in terms of, the, of somebody who thinks I am the kind of man who wears a top hat. Now, that's fine. That gives you your identity. Your identity as the man who wears a top hat is marvellous until somebody comes along and knocks the top hat into the gutter. And at that point, there is your identity rolling around in the gutter. So you are forced at that point to rebuild your identity. Roles are unstable and they are subject to external threat. So anything that is produced from them will also be unstable and subject to external threat. So while it may be a stopgap, it is no final answer to the problems of existence. That just does not work in the long run. Now, if you, if you come to what I mean, ordinary life, one depends on that sort of thing to what well, varying degrees, but very largely. I remember I was in Leeds or somewhere, I sat in the foyer of a hotel and saw two businessmen. Um, meeting one another, I think, for the first time. And it was quite extraordinary. The first ten minutes was spent in establishing their prestige, their level of correctness or respectability, or whatever it was. And there was a great elaborate dance. It was like sort of watching birds in the mating season or something. It went on and on and on. And it was only when they finally felt that they'd established this that they could relax and begin to be human and begin to be more flexible. Now that is, I mean, that's not peculiar to them, it's, it's, it's true of us all, we do this automatically. One doesn't like that external level being threatened. But on this, in this area, identity is not external. It arises from within. Therefore, it is, and of course there's no time anyway, uh, as we know it, so that the identity is not under threat. Now, um, if you can establish the external identity as the wrong role, if you can establish that on that, then you have something stable. You get a different kind of psychology and a different kind of possibility for psychological development. And in the long run, it's much more successful. But it is more in the long run. Now, I want to come back to this business of the modes of knowing. Uh, let me turn next to...
a passage in 5.8 of the intellectual beauty on the intellectual principle and knowing in the intellectual principle. And remember, the intellectual principle is beauty, usually, in Plotinus. Sometimes it speaks of that as beauty, beauty in itself, but that is non-manifest. So he usually speaks of this as beauty, because beauty, one thinks of as something manifest. And uh, this, is, this is the phrase he uses here. Still, we will be told, one cannot be in beauty and yet fail to see it. The very contrary. To see the divine as something external is to be outside of it. To become it is to be most truly in beauty. Since sight deals with the external, there can here be no vision unless in the sense of identification with the object. Unless in the sense of identification with the object. And uh, the next paragraph goes on and this identification amounts to a self-knowing, a self-consciousness guarded by the fear of losing the self in the desire of a too-wide awareness. Now, in what he's thinking of is uh, guarded by the fear of losing the self in the world of objects by a process of identification with objects, by constantly moving outwards, seeing objects, valuing the objects, valuing yourself as the object, so you become a kind of reflection of the objects. This position, as I have already said, is a position of weakness. It's a position we are forced to adopt, whether we will or not. That's the level we live on much of the time. But it is ultimately a less than human level. And most of our lives, we are less than human, according to the criterion notion of things. Um, on this level, knowing an object by identifying with it is also a mode of self-knowing. Now, again, I will come back to that, but there is a difference between these two levels, and there is a difference between this level and this level. Uh, when you go to the knowing of the one, you get something different. And I'll halt for a moment after this and see if it is clear or not to you. Um, this is Protinus in 6.9 on knowing the one. And I quoted this last time. Our way then takes us beyond knowing. In other words, on this level, there is, there is still subject and object. Even if they are united, the subject and object exist. On this level, there is no two. There is no act of knowing. There is no ego to know. And there is no object, qua object, there to know either. It's what space described as pure consciousness. Um, our way then takes us beyond knowing. There may be no wandering from unity. Knowing and knowable must all be left aside. Every object of thought, even the highest, we must pass by. For all that is good is later than this and derives from this as from the sun all the light of the day and the Dylan um, 
glosses the translation uh, better. Every object of contemplation, even the beautiful, we must pass by, for all that is beautiful is later than this, this being one. So on this level, you, you know it by becoming it. On this level, you know something by uniting with it. And this act of unity is a mode of self-knowledge. And um, from speaking of the, of the one, from none is that principle absent, and yet from all. Present, it remains absent, save to those fit to receive, disciplined into some accordance, able to touch it closely by their likeness, and by that kindred power within themselves through which, remaining as it was when it came to them from the Supreme, they are enabled to see in so far as God may be seen at all. Now, is that reasonably clear? Is anybody totally lost in that? You've got the, got the main categorizations. You notice that what is happening, what is, uh, what is being taken account of here, is the role of consciousness, the role of the consciousness of the knower in knowledge, which is completely against the whole modern notion that you can somehow subtract a common denominator as the subject and arrive at a purely objective form of knowledge. This says no, there is not a single common denominator. Consciousness changes, it has different modes, it has whatever you like, how you like to put it, different levels, different modes of operating. And as the mode is changed, so the knowledge changes. So you want a completely different system of epistemology being developed in this. And unless you uh, sort of get to grips with that, then uh, you get a bit lost in, in Plotinus. Um, is, that, is that knowing business reasonably clear? Anybody lost in it? Okay, well, the next, next thing then, if that is sort of sorted out, uh, is once again this phrase, disciplined into accordance, accordance and the present absent dichotomy from none is this principle absent and yet from all. Uh, present it remains absent, save to those fit to receive disciplined into some accordance. You get some, again this idea of the individual consciousness becoming somehow a likeness of infinitude, whatever that may mean. And uh, if that happens, then this which is experienced if you are concentrating purely on this level, the level of subject and object, but all is divided from everything else. Well, what happens to me, not what happens to you, and vice versa. And everything is divided off. If you're on this level, uh, and simply focusing on that level, then this becomes, as far as you are concerned, absence. But if there is a disciplined, something that your awareness and discipline for likeness with this, whatever that may mean, then it becomes present. It becomes presence. And this is turned the other way around. This is uh, um, put in, I think it's in 6.9, where Plotinus says, in fact, it is not this that becomes present. It is you, from this level, that become present to it. 
and in, in other words, all this present absence business is just a way of speaking. And like all ways of speaking, ultimately you've got to shelve it, destroy it. It's the reality that counts. It's not a mass of words. But the mass of words give some idea of what is being spoken about. So, uh, and he does this regularly. Uh, everybody who's been onto that level tends to do it. They keep on making statements and then withdrawing them, which is pretty infuriating. It's the sort of thing that crept into Heidegger in a much more um, localised way when he spoke of, of uh, producing things under erasure. You know, he, he wrote them and crossed them out. You, you, you know Heidegger? Not, not Heideggerians? Yeah. Like kind of magnetised, if a metal is magnetised, it becomes responsive to the magnetic field. Is it something? Yeah, it's. Like bit, it, it, but you could use that as an image for it if you like. Yes. Yeah. So that you before that, if it wasn't in accordance, you, it wouldn't really. You wouldn't be aware of it. Not. not. It. It would be nearer to say that the iron becomes aware of the magnetic field that it is. <laughs> that, that would be nearer. But it, uh, yes, that you could put it in. That all these expressions are inadequate. Um, obviously, you, you can't be like this in the sense of an external object. It's not an object. It's not external. It's neither external nor internal. It, it is what it is. It is isness, if you like. I mean, if you want to go into the language of, of Meister Eckhart, uh, then he, he used for this level istichkeit, isness. He invented the term for it, and that's one way of looking, uh, of, of speaking of it. It's as, as, as good as any. Um, so if that is so you cannot grasp it as an idea because if you grasp it as an idea which is what I've been doing all this time of talking about it you do not have it as soon as you grasp it as an idea it's no longer there because you have made it an idea you have brought it down at least to this level and probably to this level it's down on the subject-object level and the thing is that it is beyond the subject-object dichotomy so having got the idea of it, you have to, you have to throw it away. What then uh, is the means of becoming like it? Well, it's not by an idea, but it is by the cultivation of your own awareness. And uh, this I will return to in uh, one of the later sessions. But um, it, it really is Plotinus's description of, of, if you like, the way, the path, whatever you like to call it, but he says in, in 6.9 that you, you become that, you, whatever you like, how you like to put it, merges and that is wrong, but let us use that slightly misleading term. And so you merge with it and then you fall away from it and then you go back and merge with it and fall away from it, you go back and merge with it and fall away from it. And eventually, uh, if, if it all works out according to plan, it is said that it is possible for that to be there as the basis of your own awareness. Well, I mean, permanently from your point of view, not from its point of view. There is no permanence or impermanence from its point of view, and it doesn't have a point of view anyway. But is, is that okay? Um, uh, and uh, so, from our point of view, there is a part of it, it's infuriating, this sort of stuff. I remember an Indian teacher who spoke a long time about the path, and they said at the end of it, of course, in reality, there is no path, there is no one to tread it. Um, which is fine, and it's the sort of thing Protinus would have said. Uh, uh, there is no path, and there's no one to tread it, but you'd better get on and get on with it. Uh, it <laughs> uh, it's, it's a conundrum, but it is a conundrum precisely because of the limitations of language which you can express in language which are understandable. Uh, it, it's not nonsense, it's a conundrum, it's a series of paradoxes, but it is not nonsense, it's very good sense. And um, 
this this kind of path was the, precisely in the Ennead that comes last in the arrangement of porphyry, what is put forward as the more or less the divine way. Um, there is thus a converse in, in virtue in which the essential man outgrows being, outgrows the, the, this area, and essential in the sense of essence, isness, uh, becomes identical with the transcendent of being, with this. The self thus lifted, we are in the likeness of the supreme. If from that heightened self we pass still higher, image to archetype, we have won the term, end of all our journey. If we actually become lost in that, we have won the term in our journey. Fallen back again, we waken the virtue within until we know ourselves all order once more. By order he means harmony, everything completely without um, uh, friction, grating uh, within us. Once more we are lightened of the burden and moved by virtue towards intellectual principle and through the wisdom in that to the supreme. This is the life of gods and of the godlike and blessed among men. And that is, the, that is his, his version precisely of the, the fullness of life, the highest form of life. And he speaks of it in one of the other Indians as freedom. And this is getting in the lock of bird. I don't really know Yakob Burma at all. Sorry, I'm hopping sideways in this one. But um, Yakob Burma called this. The word for that was defiant freedom. And it is. I mean, it's, it's a very literal description of it. Because if, if you think of freedom, you start thinking of freedom in ordinary life, as soon as you say, well, what do you mean by freedom? People say, well, it's, it's freedom to do what you like or it's freedom from worry, or freedom from debt, or freedom from governments, or whatever it may be, but always freedom to do something, or freedom from something. In other words, you have freedom described in terms of bondage, of one sort or another, restriction. If you get to this level, you think it's true, there is no boundary. Therefore, there being no boundary, this is freedom. And uh, the, the gift of that level is freedom exactly freedom it leaves you in complete freedom and if it is possible to attain it I mean I don't know but if it is possible to attain it as a permanent condition then uh, that freedom is there as a lived reality and that is of course an idea that comes up again and again in a lot of religious traditions the truth shall make you free what do you mean by truth well the truth is that which is permanent from a relative point of view that which is permanent about things that which is permanent about things from a relative point of view is the timelessness of infinitude because there is nowhere where it is not Uh, and uh, if you take truth in that sense then to be possessed by that is to be free and the, the, uh, this level is the level which uh, Plotinus is very fond of saying possesses nothing. He said it is the good precisely because it possesses nothing. Possessing nothing, it is completely free. As soon as you possess something, you get chained. Um, and as you move upwards, 
not only does your awareness change and your identity change, but also the whole nature of the self changes. I mean, we are pretty miserable creatures down on this level much of the time, as we've doubtless observed in our own cases and in the cases of others, particularly especially in the cases of others. These <laughs> <laughs> things are much clearer then. <laughs> but um, as you move up, these things change. Um, this is the sort of more glorified level of existence, if you like. And uh, in the intellectual principle, um, it, it was said earlier that on, on this level, to know an object is also self-knowledge, and the self that is known is not the self of this level. It's changed, and it's described by Plotinus um, in 6.9 as a self wrought to splendour, brimmed with the intellectual light, which is rather a nice thought, I think. The ultimate... Um, here, which Plotinus also refers to as God sometimes, he, he said this at that level, God is cause of himself, for himself and of himself he is what he is, the first self transcendently, the self. In other words, uh, if, you, if you, you base yourself here in everything on objects, to give you a sense of identity, if you move inwards, you begin to get united with objects, but there is still discrimination, there is still distinction there, there is still a subject object there. If you pursue, you arise at infinitude, which is your own nature. There are certain passages in Wordsworth where this is very clear. I, he obviously had this kind of experience, and Coleridge was very uneasy about it. He made him rewrite some of the things. But there's one, what's it called now? Um, there's, a, there's a passage which uh, he put into the 1799 prelude and it was then shoved into the later preludes and it was, it was gradually trimmed to, to make it a bit more respectable but he started off by saying that uh, he's describing the ultimate self as like the, the sky with devoid of any cloud within it, within it so everything became simply this ultimate reality himself and everything else around him became this. And this experience was something which he, he then sort of the, trimmed down the expression of. Yeah. yeah, there was some, somebody who gave on, on the television a couple of weeks ago, one of these religious programs, gave an exact uh, experience like that. He was actually a vicar. And uh, he went on the tree. And he, and he didn't know what... The thing that he said was he didn't know what, what to do with Christ and what to do with the Virgin Mary because this didn't seem to be the same thing at all, oh, you know. And uh, it was just like that. Yeah. And, uh, it does, you see, it's, it's, it's very difficult. It was difficult for Wordsworth. The thing was that, uh, in, in spite of Thomas Taylor, there wasn't really a language in the culture to deal with this kind of thing, and there was no conceptual framework to deal with it. I mean, if you, you've got 18th century empiricism, and you've got the associative psychology uh, deriving ultimately from Locklar, Hartley, and people of this kind, you've got all that stuff, and then you try and fit this into it. Well, what comes out? Well, what comes out is Freud and the oceanic experience. And Freud was scared stiff of this kind of uh, thing. He avoided it like the plague. And uh, I suspect it avoided him like the plague. <laughs> um, I, it really is nonsense. But uh, Wordsworth had this difficulty. It's very difficult to conceptualise it because it's not a concept. It can't be conceptualised. Any conceptualisation is an objectivisation and a falsification. So you have to keep on stating concepts and then denying their validity. Yeah. How was Coleridge? Um, 
Sorry? Why was Coleridge Well, uh, Coleridge was unhappy with it because I, I, I don't know Coleridge as well as Wordsworth, but I think it was basically because he felt that it conflicted with what he regarded as Christian orthodoxy. And uh, it came from a long period in the Christian development in the 18th century, certainly in Britain, and I suspect elsewhere in Europe, where one of the great crimes that people could commit was something called pantheism, which they never bothered to define. But uh, pantheism was an insult which was hurled to anybody you didn't like. It was rather like the phrase which used to go around in the 50s, and uh, well, right, it was later 50s, but uh, there used to be a phrase, a dangerous um, communist and homosexual. Just this phrase, dangerous communist and homosexual. This was thrown as a bomb at anybody you didn't like. And, uh, uh, I mean, it's laughable now, but, my goodness, it did um, a lot of harm. I remember there was a fellow who moved in political circles. His, his uh, family and his sort of patrons wished him to become an MP. I don't know if he ever did. But I heard a story from him that um, it was a friend of his, and he was having an affair with some young woman. And he rang up this young girl one night and instead got hold of the mother and he didn't realise it, he thought it was the daughter, and so he said, and how is the old cow, um, which didn't go down too well with the mother, it was a very offensive phrase in those days, so the old cow apparently put down the telephone and then picked it up again and rang a friend in MI5 and said, so-and-so is a dangerous communist and homosexual. And he immediately had his visa for the states withdrawn, the studentship he'd got there cancelled, and so on. A whole lot of things followed from this. And because, of course, in this country blacklists don't exist, if you get on them, you can never get yourself off them. So uh, that is one of the sort of consequences you get of this kind of thing. But it was used, I mean, uh, a pantheist was used in that way in the 18th century. I went to a lot of 18th century theology at one time. And pantheist was something you screamed, something you didn't like. But uh, as, as has subsequently been pointed out now, um, Wordsworth's position was not a pantheist position. Pantheist is literally all God. It, it, it's supposed to be that God is the sum total of the universe. Well, I know of nobody who held this view. I've never come across a pantheist. What, in fact, all of them have turned out to be that I have come across has been something which is nowadays referred to as impantheist. That is to say that the universe is subsumed into divinity which transcends it. It's a different position. And that in, in pantheism is now perfectly respectable. You can be an impantheist and a perfectly orthodox Christian. But in the later 18th century, early 19th century, it was more dicey. I suspect that's what lay behind it. I don't know, but I, I, I've never been into it, but I suspect that's what lay behind it. Anyway, he certainly had cold feet about it. Um, sorry, that was a long canter, as they would say in Waiting for Goddard. Uh, more of a kind of vortex galloping down the drain, isn't it? Um, let's go back to the business of the real beings or the authentic existence, which is the phrase which is usually used by um, McKenna. I want to take two passages here. One is more theoretical and the other is more a direct description. The intellectual principle is a seeing, and a seeing which itself sees. In other words, awareness being aware of awareness. 
seen is seen seen. It's okay. Um, therefore, it is a potentiality which has become effective. This implies the distinction of matter and form in it. Listen to this. this is the, everybody says, or a lot of people still say, that Plotinus is anti-matter. Um, this implies the distinction of matter and form in it. Form, shape, idea as there must be in all actual seeing, the matter in this case being the intelligibles which the intellectual principle contains and sees. All actual seeing implies duality. Before the seeing takes place, there is the pure unity, the power of the power of seeing. That unity of principle acquires duality in act of seeing, and the duality is always to be traced back to the unity. Now, you're coming back to this business of the, the, the son of the good, uh, empowering the seer to perceive the object in the, in the Republic. It's the same kind of idea. But um, there is duality, but in unity. There is, in fact, a kind of triad in unity on this level. There is a distinction between subject and object, but the two are in also, in a sense, not different. And the um, the matter, the material aspect, is in the intelligibles, the ideas, in or forms, in the Platonic sense, on this level, which are in Platonic. Uh, remember, they are intelligences, they are alive. There is nothing on that level, said Protonus, which is not alive. Now, what does that mean in practice? Well, this is what it means in practice. This is the past passage which shows you the bits of similar words or twice already. It's one of my favourites. I don't apologise for reading it again. Where, where that came from? Uh, yeah, it came from 3811. And on, in this penguin thing, it's page 246. You can find that, that passage. It's a more theoretical statement. It's abstract and rationalised. This is an actual description, this one. It's, uh, it reads to me like a description. I am interpreting it as a description. Let us be correct according to the best modern theory. Uh, there, by there, he means the intellectual principle. To live at ease is there... And to these divine beings, verity is mother and nurse, existence and sustenance. All that is not of process, of becoming, of samsara, but of authentic being, of isness, they see and themselves in all. For all is transparent, nothing dark, nothing resistant. Every being is lucid to every other in breadth and depth. Light runs through light. And each of them contains all within itself. And at the same time sees all in every other. So that everywhere there is all. And all is all and each all. And infinite the glory. Each of them is great the small is great. The sun there is all the stars, and every star again is all the stars and sun. While some one manner of being is dominant in each, all 
are mirrored in every other. In our realm, all is part rising from part, and nothing can be more than partial. But there, each being is an eternal product of a whole, and is at once a whole and an individual, manifesting as part, but to the keen vision there, known for the whole it is. It's a, it's a marvellous passage. I think it, uh, it always draws me, it always has done. I, I think it's the most magnificent description I know of that, that kind of level. Um, anywhere. I really, really, I often feel when I come to this aspect of Plotinus that I know no words to express the greatness of that man. I think you ought to have somebody other than me talking about him. He's, 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 he's just beyond all these things, you know. One ought to be more or less enlightened to talk about somebody like that. But anyway, there you are. That's, that's what he says about that level. And, um, you know, notice that on that level, identity is not separate. This is the, this is the important thing. Wholeness is both, as it were, around the part and within the part. Everything, it's non spatial and non temporal. And he, he, he brings this up quite clearly in that, that passage. Yeah. Do you think we should say that wonderful thing you just described, really only happens effectively when we have, uh, at the deepest level, lost our awareness in the, the one that we, the zero that we can't know. So, so, so that we, we have the knowledge of beyond what we can know and allow our awareness to be able to get lost in what we can't know. And, and then, then mysteriously, from this level we can't know, we lost ourselves in, the, what is, the spirit comes down and makes the triangle as well function uh, successful. That's right. That is, that is the value of the absolute, if you like, or one or that which is beyond number. That is precisely the value. Uh, to turn one's awareness towards that even is in itself a blessing uh, because it is the beginning of the cultivation of this level. Uh, if you want to look at it in modern uh, socio-economic terms, it is the rendering efficient of the human nervous system. What we are is a lot of smoking Victorian coal fires, whereas we ought to be <laughs> one of these beautiful things which collects light from the sun and leaves no nasty residue. And uh, in rendering ourselves efficiently, we, we do begin to move in the active level onto this level. Yes, that is true. Uh, there are various orders in which these can be known. It depends. It does, does vary. It is possible to go from here to there and from there to there. Uh, it is perhaps more common to go from there to there and then come back to that. It depends. It depends. But uh, yes, it's, uh, it's certainly true. Certainly true. And the, um, I'll come back to this perhaps in connection with Gerda Padden, uh, which I... I think I'm probably going to bring up next time. But um, this is the means of transforming the nature of awareness. Uh, the, the reason why I say this is because, for instance, there's a, a very intelligent, very good piece of modern Western scholarship by an American scholar on Goethe Paddock, who wrote for Kelly Carr, who was a, a commentary um, on the Monday Patrick Punisher. 
uh, in which he puts forward a scheme of consciousness. I don't want to bother you with the details, and what you're saying is that, um, that certain of the arguments in this Western work of scholarship were based upon apparent contradictions in earlier works between two ideas of sleep, deep sleep. Uh, one was the idea that in deep sleep you go to ignorance and destruction, you're no longer there, but nothing. And the sort of idea that Hume played around with. The other was that deep sleep is identical with the highest self, and the experience of it is intense bliss and light. And the, the, the commentator says, well, of course, there's a complete contra contradiction here, and therefore one must have been contradicting the other, and so on. He, he reacts a Western-style sequence, scholarly sequence on it, but I'm afraid he's got it wrong. Uh, the thing is, that, um, if you, if this begins to register, the, the nature of deep sleep changes. So deep sleep starts by being simply ignorance and destruction. It can be what Shankara said it was, that is to say, an experience of intense bliss and of the night night. You can drift off into it. It's possible. Uh, and according to Shankara, you can do it all the time if you're Shankara. But, uh, well, it's not Shankara, but there you are. Um, in other words, one is dealing, once again, with the vulnerable. One is dealing with a modes of consciousness that change. They change from individual to individual, they change within the life of an individual from time to time, and they, you can, if you set about it, develop a, a, a change, so that the, all sorts of changes become established. And this is the great possibility of human life, without that life is a miserable business. I mean, who wants to go on uh, struggling and struggling and struggling on this level where everything is, if you like, death, nothing can be hung to. You lean upon a blackboard which is subject to entropy while you declare. What future is there in that? It's absurd. There's no, no dignity of life there. If you want dignity of life, you can get it on this level, but only if you've got these levels there as well. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of it. It's practical, in other words. But um, it's a shut door unless you become at least intellectually aware that this is possible. It is possible. And without it, you can never get out of this wretched sort of clothes pig which pinches you in the middle. It's rather like Ariel wailing in that pine tree. Um, the, the, the next thing about the intellectual principles, I said already, is that it's alive. Uh, everything there is, is, is um, alive. And also, the, the fact that you've got the intellectual principles, when I said so, one fine, but... Is that all? Well, I'm describing one as one thing, and then self-awareness coming up in it is something different, okay? And that's what it sounds like, isn't it? There is self-awareness and everything is different. Well, in a way that's true, but in a way it's not true, I'm afraid. And Protinus was up to that one, too. He's got the, the following description... And again, this, this corresponds to a whole lot of things, both in the East and in people like uh, Jakob Burma, to whom I find myself going back every now and then. He had, I suppose, barbarous terminology, but my goodness, he saw a lot. He was a, he was a great man. Um, he's, uh, th this is Bertinus describing the intellect, uh, the intellectual principle. At first... Now notice he says at first, he does he, he did this in some of the earlier quotations, I meant to pick, pick it up at the time. Please, be careful. When you say at first, it doesn't mean it temporarily. 
It's not, in, not one thing following another in a, in, in a discursive sequence. That only exists on this level. It, it's at first in the sense of being, in a way, more fundamental, which is a spatial metaphor. But what else can I use? Uh, so first is used in a different sense, and it's used, of course, I think, in that different sense, as I would understand it in things like in the beginning was the word, uh, where in the beginning is not the, a temporal thing, thing there in the past, it's what Jacob Berner called an eternal beginning. The inner nature of things here and now and everywhere and always. Uh, it's, it's, it's a completely different way of using it. But anyway, here we are. Um, at first, it was not intellect looking upon the good. It was a looking void of intellection. A looking void of intellection. So the understanding is not there. It's the, it's the beginnings of a dim awareness of differentiation between intellect and good, if you like. That's, one, that's not a very good way of putting it. You see what I mean? At first, it was not intellect looking upon the good. It was a looking void of intellection. We must think of it not as looking, but as living. Otherwise, the nature of awareness. Dependent upon that, it kept itself turned thither, that being the one. All the tendons taking place there and upon that must be a movement, teeming with life, and must so fill the looking principle. There is no longer bare act. There is a filling to saturation. Forthwith, it becomes all things. Knows that fact in virtue of its self-knowing and at once becomes intellectual principle filled so as to hold within itself that object of its vision, seeing all by the light from the giver and bearing that light with it. In this way, the Supreme may be understood to be the cause at once of essential reality and of the knowing of reality. The sun, the cause of the existence of sense things and of their being seen, is indirectly the cause of sight, without being either the faculty or the object. Similarly, this principle, the good cause of being and intellectual principle, is a light appropriate to what is to be seen there and to their seer. Neither the beings nor the intellectual principle, it is their source, and by the light it sheds upon them, upon them both, makes them objects of intellection. In other words, you've got, uh, uh, once again, in the language of the, the, the sun passage from the Republic, the sun of the good, you've got it as the source of the intelligence and perception and of the objects we perceive. So it is both those and not those. It's not those because not a thing can't divide it from it. It is, it, is, it is not something. Now what you've got in that is the replacement of this very neat scheme here, where one thing, uh, one thing is way of another thing. What you've got is a gradual shift. You see what I mean? You've got something which is gradually, almost imperceptibly, ceasing to be. Except, of course, it never ceases to be. But in a manner of speaking, allowing to arise within it something other than what it seemed to be originally. You've got a process. Um, not a process of sequence, but a gradation of being, if I could put it that way. And in other words, you've got 
you've got the denial of this meat division, and you've got instead something which is nearer our sort of spectrum, or like day merging into dark. Where do you draw the line? Where do you say, here daylight ceases, here darkness begins? You can see daylight, you can see darkness, and between there is a gradual shifting. It's, it's nearer there. And um, you've got a stage which uh, in the East tended to be known as the warming up of the absolute, and in people like Jakob Berman was referred to, he used, he used the word Bannon, and what Bannon meant in his, the German of his time was a seething up, like a pot boiling over. You had the pot and it seized up and overflowed. It's, it's, it's a, a rather graphic image that he uses there. But it's the same kind of thing. There is, as it were, a, um, a gradation between these two. I simply point that out because uh, you know, I don't get hooked on this as a system. It's a system and you can throw it away. Use it and check it. Um, and then a series of subordinate points. How's the time going? Yeah, all right. Um, These are rather disconnected, but they are. In the intellectual principle, according to Plotinus, the beings communicate directly by present consciousness, is the phrase in McKenna, by present consciousness. In other words, you don't communicate through words and language, you don't signal by something external. Uh, it, it is nearer telepathic experience, which I'm sure must be familiar to many of you here, where something registers directly. Um, and words emerge from that registering. And this relates to language. Uh, and we may come back to this later, I don't know. I think I, did I mention it last time? Did I mention the passionate business and the nature of language? I think I did. Well, remember that if you take language as a code, you take it on the external level. It's no accident, it seems to me, that Hidara insists that language is writing. That is the most externalised form of language. But, and he denies the, what he would call misleading presence in, in the spoken language. But if instead you take language as a mental process, you get pre-verbal language. That, that is something you can sometimes experience. And the pre-verbal level is what is in Sanskrit linguistics known as the Pashanti level, which is a level of total awareness where, the in, uh, where subject and object merge into a unity. There are no words, there is no discursivity. Um, and there, this, this kind of linguistic analysis is not to be found, to the best of my knowledge anyway, in Plotinus. But what you do get is something which does relate to the, the Pashanti level in thought. Um, he speaks of uh, the verbal formula which accompanies the mental conception. This mental conception, an indivisible thing, and one that never rises to the exterior of the consciousness lies unknown below. The verbal forma, formula, the revealer, the bridge between the concept and the image-taking faculty, exhibits the concept as in a mirror. In other words, you, the verbalization is an external reflection of an inner um, conceptualization, which is a totality. And he says that it lies unknown below, but it clearly doesn't lie entirely unknown below, because he knows of it. Uh, and, um, of course, it can be experienced on occasion, but it is usually not conscious on the, on the surface level. It's aware that it goes along. And uh, this links with another uh, aspect of the mind, um, uh, uh, 
sort of dual levels in the mind, some of them of which one is not aware of in the outer, in the outer aspect of the mind. Um, and I'll return to that in a moment to um, a moment or two. Um, the, the next thing is the question of, if you like, God and time, or the deceptive nature of time. Now, I'm not sure that this passage really gets around the verbal difficulties of this. Uh, language moves in time, or its movement creates time. It depends how you look at it. But um, God, therefore, must take in the future, present beforehand. <coughs> Certainly there is no later in the divine. What is there as present is future for elsewhere. If then the future is present, it must be present as having been foreconceived for later coming to be. At that divine stage, therefore, it lacks nothing, and therefore can never lack. All existed eternally, and in such a way that at the later stage any particular thing may be said to exist for this or that purpose. The all in its extension, and so to speak, unfolding, is able to present succession. But while it is bound up together, it is a single, total fact. In other words, it contains its cause, as well as everything else, within itself. In other words, the one is beyond sequence, beyond time, and beyond causation. The potentiality of causation is there, so, and that's what he means when he says that it is the cause of itself. And uh, the, the idea of purpose in time is a manner of speaking. It can be said to exist, but it does not exist. That is because if you imagine a divinity having a purpose within time, uh, then the ultimate divinity is time, and your God is within it. But God is not in time, time is in God, if you want to put it that way around, if you want to use uh, that kind of language, I usually prefer to avoid it because it's so misleading, or tends to be so misleading. But um, once you think that way, yes, it can register to a temporal mind moving apparently through time as purpose. But that purpose is a way of looking at it, it is a way of understanding it, it is not the ultimate reality. And the same is true of plans. And you hear a lot of people talking about the divine plan. From that point of view, there is no plan. A plan exists in a temporal world. It, it exists of, of the future. And since there is no present and future in eternity, let alone in timelessness, on the divine level, you do not get a plan. You get that which registers on the external level as plan. You can perceive it as planned, but don't be misled by your way of perceiving. You need to free yourself from that as well as using this manner of speaking. And um, the the next thing is. Yes, this is, this is uh, Plotinus on planning. There is in fact no planning there. We speak of reasoned purpose in the world of things only to convey that the universe is of the character which in the later order would po point to wise purposing. But in speaking of this in terms of the later order, you are also misrepresenting it. 
there's no harm in misrepresenting it. What else can you do? But do remember that it is a misrepresentation. Um, and then the, the, the last of these quotations, you'll doubtless be relieved to know, uh, is this one. I can't remember what it was now. Um, five, three, nine. Oh, yes, there we are. Yes, this was on the causation business that I mentioned earlier. This is in 6.9. Note similarly that when we speak of this thirst as cause, we are affirming something happening not to it, but to us. The fact that we take from this self-enclosed, that we take from this self-enclosed, strictly we should put neither a this nor a that to it, we hover, as it were, about it, seeking the statement of an experience of our own, sometimes nearing this reality, sometimes baffled by the enigma in which it dwells. In other words, again, to, to speak of the diviner's cause is ultimately wrong, though it may be useful. It's ultimately it's a misstatement. Um, The next thing is that the, the intellectual principle has this vision of the light within itself. And there is this distinction, between 6-9, between the one as a light shining within itself and this as a light shining outwards. And the intellectual principle, focusing upon the light that is its own nature, moves back into that in a manner of speaking. That is the link, or a leap between the two. Um, the final point I want to make, I think it's almost the final anyway, about all this, is that the, in this kind of structure, and in what I have been saying of psychology, uh, and the, the nature of identity and things of this kind, another um, factor comes up, and that is that whereas nowadays we tend to think of the senses as external, of something governed by a material body, or at times the senses are inherent in the intelligence, and the external senses are merely a means of allowing the mind's own properties to function on this level. That's a completely different way of looking at the senses, but it is a, a, a mode of looking at them which is found also in the East. And um, for the consequence of this is again something which people often do not realise that that is to say that Rotinus is not anti-sensuous. He is uh, superlatively sensuous. Uh, this, is, this is what he says. This is um, six, seven, uh, section 7. Perceptions here are intellections... Oh, sorry. Uh, perceptions here, down on this level. Perceptions here are intellections of the dimmer order. So sensory perceptions. Yeah. When you perceive an object with the senses here, it is a perception of the dimmer order. And the intellections there are vivid perceptions. They are not non-sensuous. They are not abstract. They are very, very powerfully concrete and can indeed be overwhelmingly concrete. Yeah. Um, he makes a, um, a distinction between the actual physical um, phenomena and the sense impressions that, 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 that you can't get anything from the physical map 
physical actual events, but what what actually like that manifesting the impression of that that can actually make make more sense to the mind or to the soul. The actual physical things are not really um, they're too brute as it were, you know, they're too I'm thinking of the I think it's in the um, first NEO that he talks about that where he's, he's saying that that um, you know he's trying to work out what, what the animators and you know yeah, yeah. and he says that you can't really you've got to make a distinction between um, the act say a noise and the perception of the noise, which is a it's a different thing entirely. But yeah. the mind can work with the perception. He, he, I can't remember that exact passage, but maybe what he says, and again, I can't remember which picture he is and what it comes in, but there's a, there's a passage where he speaks of the relationship between sense and perception and the ideas, and of course the ideas are within the mind. And he speaks of sensory perceptions as it were triggering the ideas. That seems like the very first level downwards, from the bottom upwards, where, where it starts to sort of go into the mind, as it were, from the... From the because I can never quite understand what he means by matter. Um, it's very difficult to sort of... It is the substratum of all objectivity. Is it something on the outermost limits? Ah, that's gross matter, yes. But yeah. there's also the intelligible matter on the, in no, the intellectual principle. Gross matter. Well, gross matter is merely an externalisation of the intelligible matter. Uh, intelligible matter here is completely malleable. Here, it is malleable in the sense that what is malleability on this level becomes virtually death, deadness here. Uh, it is uh, without qualities, uh, it doesn't interfere with the objective organisation, as it were, um, according to his way of thinking. But uh, the, the, the psychological mode you're talking about is quite important. Again, I'll come back to that. It, uh, um, one has to again and again mention the time. But it is that the, it's the real essence of psychological motivation is not. It may seem to be. You may want whatever it is, money, power, wine, money, so on, and what, whatever you're pursuing here, um, is an externalization of something which exists in far greater power on an internal level. So the external is not divided off from the internal, but it is a sort of reflecting mirror and somewhat baffling. And you pursue constantly outside yourself things that are ultimately only to be found within yourself. Uh, but within yourself in a non-spatial, non-temporal sense. That is to say, not within me as opposed to you, but on a final level, or however you like to put it. I mean, all these are spatial metaphors, but that, 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 is, the, that is the idea of the... Of, of his thinking and the, the intellections here the grappling with ideas I mean again the, the platonic ideas are usually thought of as abstractions but uh, on, on this level he says no they are extremely abstractions and anybody who's glimpsed that sort of level will I think confirm that I mean have you ever looked at the heart of a flower and seen it radiant with beauty a beauty that a flower does not... I know Kathleen has it. She's got a description, a magnificent description in one of her volumes of autobiography. But um, if you see that, then there is an unfolding of something which is far more sensuous than sensuousness on the ordinary gross level. It's not a whittling away and denial. It's an increase. But the increase goes also with detachment, in a way. The two go together. You can't have the one without the other. Uh, 
All right, I'm going to dry up at this point. Uh, the, the, in the next lecture, if you can bear another one, uh, I'm going on to the world soul and the, uh, probably in the next lecture anyway, it depends how much I can get in, but the world soul and Plotinus on the nature of the way as he understands it, uh, his own sort of map of this, this direction and one of perhaps one or two cryptic things that he says about his own sort of technology for the way in modern terms and I may also bring in Godapada uh, to some extent and the uh, Chatushpad formulation of consciousness which he has which uh, it's a different formulation it's a different schematization it's a different categorization but essentially he's saying the same thing it seems to me and that is something you'll have to judge for yourselves but Plotinus has got all these things in him uh, but it is laid down in a more sort of systematic way as a kind of textbook uh, formulation in Godapada, and one could follow at least the earlier stages of what he's talking about, so that you have the um, people who have no historical link at all, as far as anybody knows, uh, coming together in what they say. And again, this is, uh, it, it is quite important, because if, if on this level one starts grappling with this sort of thing, and obviously you do ask, how do you know? Uh, if a scientist comes along and says, you know, this is true, that's true, the other true, uh, is true, then um, you say, how do you know? You can always say, well, stand up there and I'll run over with a motor car. But uh, on this kind of level, you, you're not engaged with that. You, you have to, to sense with other levels of the mind, the beginnings of the maturity level of the mind, and um, I mentioned that the, the, the nature of known changes, but the, uh, the, the fact that there are various people in different traditions and different parts of the world uh, giving very acute formulations which do seem to have a remarkable amount in common is reassuring. One man says there's gold mining in Peru, you may not believe it. If two men say there's gold mining in Peru, uh, you may not believe it. If uh, a lot of people come back and say there is, then you might begin at least to conceive of it as a possibility. It doesn't mean to say that 20,000 dodos can't be wrong. Uh, it is merely that some sort of uh, support at this stage of uh, corroboration is quite, um, quite reassuring in the earlier stages because you don't want to make a lot of effort to move in the direction of something which uh, they may very well not exist. I mean, it's, uh, one's too lazy for that. <laughs> the one thing you can count on with human beings, I always thought, is laziness. Nothing, nothing else you can count on, but that you can count on. So um, at, at that point, I shall dry up. Is that okay? Yeah, uh, where, where do I start? I think you were the first, yeah. Um, I've got three questions, actually. Yep. Yeah. Oh, 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 first one, um, was the, the likeness becoming like a presence. So that as the research principle becomes in likeness to the one, it, it's as it, you could almost say that it, it's, it's becoming present to the one. Can you reverse that? And also just talk about the question, my question is, can you, can you reverse that and also describe the intellectual principle for us to achieve that as being absent from the one? Does that not work? No, because on this level there is no time. I mean, this is a manner of speaking. On this level, the, the, um, in this level is time, okay? There only is time as we know, sequence. On this level, you've got timelessness, all right? 
And on this level, you have eternity. Now, how do you express eternity in terms of time? Well, you can't. But uh, you can sense the differences in time as you move in. Uh, it gets slower. It gets very, very much slower. You get an experience of something which is very much like geological time. I, I had it once going around the Grand Canyon and the aeroplane and all things, but uh, uh, it was extraordinary. Or, you know the Grand Canyon at all? All these outcrops of rock, you know, and they've all got peculiar names. And then name them was way into sort of traditional Indian thoughts. So they called them all whatever it was, Vishnu, Shiva, things of this kind. And then when he ran out of Indian names, he called them after the Arthurian legends. So you've got Guinevere and Arthur. And <laughs> anyway, they were all very familiar. I was looking at these, and I saw a very pinnacle of rock, but with sort of little uh, bits of sort of hollowed out of it right down it. And I just, the, the thought flipped through my mind, uh, thrones for the gods. And at that moment, I was suddenly click, and... I experienced time in a completely different way. It was very puzzling afterwards because I didn't know how I could tell that time was different, but it was. I eventually concluded it was because time was an aspect of consciousness, but it was very obviously different. It slowed, slowed immensely, and it had an enormous horizon. It stretched back and back and back and forward and forward and forward. It was immense. It's a, it's a, it's a very odd experience. The only time I've ever had that kind of experience. But uh, you can notice it also if you go into the, into the mind at the time changing sometimes. But on this level, time is not sequential. There is no time. Yeah, or in the ordinary sense, it's the interface between timelessness and time. And so to speak of the um, intellectual principle of ever having been without the one is to bring it on to this level. Do you see what I mean? But as a manner of, of speaking, um, uh, as one can experience these things within one's own mind, it makes sense. All right? <laughs> uh, that's, that's question one. I'll, I'll come to you in a moment. Well, the question is very much related to do with um, future and past and the plan or fates. Yeah, yeah whatever. Um, I didn't understand it. That's all. Um, well, it's, it's, uh, I, I, you can think of it spatially, if you like. Yeah. You can think of it as a seed having a whole plant in little and then growing and projecting it outwards. Okay? Um, uh, it, uh, I didn't quote that passage, but there is a passage somewhere. I don't know what I've done with the chalk, never mind. Uh, but uh, Protinus speaks of um, this level as not having plans, but as having what he calls pattern. Yeah. And that pattern is a kind of order. And that kind of order projected onto the temporal level can appear to be planned. I don't know whether that helps. Yeah, that's, 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 that's that all right? Yeah, so the all perceived order is not in fact planned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the perceived order is always governed by the nature of the perceiver. Right. So if you're a temporal being, you perceive that order as planned, but it doesn't mean to say that it is planned. Right. And if you shift onto an, an inner level, it will change its nature. Okay. okay, and then the I third one. That's very easy. It's the reference to what we're talking about the 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 whole being visible in the sun and the past, past being. Oh yes, well, it's simply because this is a spatial and a temporal. Yeah. Uh, you see, if 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 we are if on the external level you make a whole by getting a hold of different things and putting them together, yeah. and this is governed by uh, space time. 
It takes time to put the things together, and what you've got is a spatial whole which then registers through time, in the sense that if you look at it, you, your eye moves about, and you, um, I, I mean, you know this Husserlian analysis of a tune, you, you never hear a tune. You come across that, well, he's, he's very clever, uh, um, but you never, you never hear a tune. What you hear always is a note. I mean, if you hear a five-second long note, how do you know it's a five-second long note? You don't. You never hear five-second long. What you hear is a note. Um, so what you've got at work there is, uh, from the temporal point of view, memory, that it's gone on for five seconds, plus immediate memory, plus note. And then when you come to a tune, you never hear a tune. I mean, supposing a tune is made up of 12 notes. Well, at any time, you're either hearing a note, one note, or not. But you don't hear the tune. The tune is constructed in the mind by taking a pattern out of this sequence and making a whole of it. You're beginning to move in the opposite direction of Mozart, moving outwards from his whole towards a sequence of notes. Um, so you, you've got, I haven't gone to this. Uh, you've got you've got this. This has uh, a uh, within the, um, the the business of of, of knowing on, on this level. Now, in that, you've got a wholeness, in a way, coming out in a sequence of parts. And you can, you can change the nature of the whole by shifting around the parts on this level, and so on. But uh, as you move inwards, at this, this point, the being, and he's specific about this in 5.8, the, the being is its own space and time. It contains its own space and time. Time is its movement towards the one, and its place is its own nature. Time and place are subsumed inside the intellectual principle. At this point, there's no time and space at all. Place and time don't exist. So these things change. Now, from this point of view, you've got a sequence of bits, one after the other. And that is true for that level. It's not false. It's true for that level. But if you take any point, spatially or temporarily, within this sequence, then within that is that, and within that is that. Or outside that is that, and outside that is that. I mean, inside outside is a spatial term. But uh, it, it, it can contain this whole because uh, the, the nature of ultimate reality is beyond space and time. All right? I'll come back to you in a moment. You, sorry, you've been waiting very patiently. Yes. You were talking about the vividness of the experience yeah. of the triangle, IB level. Yeah. And it occurred to me that one could even more easily get sort of stuck in the witch there. Yes. The one could at the level of the yes. square. I mean, sex and food and security are less subjective. This is this is what a lot of the Buddhists say. They speak of the light as possibly sort of uh, uh, so engaging on that level. Go through these experiences, so one gets opened up to receive the um, light of the unknowable zero. I think you refer to it as the good at one point. Yes, well, that's the that's that's platonic term for it. Well, our mundane experiences and our trying experiences to open up to the to receive the the unknowable into our lives so we are transformed by the good, then we've got to be careful not to get stuck at the IP level. You're coming up from the square to the triangle. We have to remember that we don't stop at the triangle. That's perfectly true. If, you, if you're fully become that triangle, it is the nature of the triangle to look towards the one. Ah, so it's, it's only if you're, if you're partially doing it that you get stuck. But uh, yes, if you wish to be absolutely safe, go to this first and then come up to that. That's, that, that's perfectly okay. Sorry, you, you had no, no. I was just thinking about when you were talking about um, the bits and pieces of the tune. Yeah. 
Oh, who's there? Okay, um, yeah. Pop mine. Does that um, give a different idea about memory? Because we always think temporarily about memory. In the, in the temporal way, you think of like, I remember this, uh, yeah. and I remember the next. Yeah. What you're saying is it's going, not temporarily, but it's going back to, a, to, a, a, to a, something that holds the whole pattern, as it were, rather than seeing all the bits and pieces and remembering from one piece to another. Well, it, it is true that any, uh, I mean, that people have done experiments on, on this sort of stuff on the external level, it is true that any perception is governed by some kind of archetypal wholeness which is read into it. Without that, you cannot perceive. Uh, this is one of the arguments which uh, involves observation in the sciences. Uh, I mean, the argument is that in the sciences that the idea that there is objective observation is nonsense. All observation is, as they put it, theory-dependent. Without the dependence upon theory, observation becomes impossible. So your um, objective observation is a figment, which rather blasts a hole in what was earlier regarded uh, as the um, unassailable epistemology of modern science. Is it time? Yeah, I've got. Uh, that's it. We're, we're out on our next.